Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for KCSB News' first event of the year, A Year in COVID, Medical Racism, Care Disparities, and Health Misinformation. We're joined today by an incredible selection of panelists who come from an array of backgrounds and areas of expertise that we'll be discussing in more detail shortly. This conversation will be moderated by myself, KCSB Internal News Director, Ashley Rush, and our wonderful External News Director, Aubrey Valerio. A recording of this event will also air on KCSB FM 91.9 on Thursday, May 20th at 5 p.m. And you'll also find the recording of the video posted on our KCSB YouTube and Facebook pages. And before we begin, we'd like to take this moment to make a land acknowledgement for the Chumash people, whose exclusion and erasure by this university system is ongoing through the exploitation of their land and resources, as well as UCSB's continued support of Mauna Kea as it is within KCSB's mission statement to uplift marginalized voices and perspectives, we are committed to begin fostering a relationship with the local Chumash and indigenous communities to acknowledge the atrocities committed and ongoing legacies of settler colonialism. We pay our respects to the Chumash elders, past, present, and future, who call this place, Anascoyo, the land that Isla Vista sits upon, their home. Now getting into our discussion, the general agenda for the next hour is to get an understanding of how medical racism functions to oppress marginalized groups, the role of misinformation during moments of crisis, um, and where we can go from there. Um, envisioning how policymakers, medical leaders, and journalists can work collectively to combat structural inequities, to um, foster trust within um, communities that are not, that haven't had the best history in this country who have been marginalized and oppressed. Um, so to those in the audience, we'll be ending the panel. Oh, well, sorry, uh, I feel like I just went into that point super abruptly, but at the end of this discussion, um, after everyone's listened in and we've had this conversation um, and we hear everyone's insights, uh, we'll have a Q&A where um, you can ask anyone on this panel a question, you can ask everyone a question. Um, so be sure to keep that in mind throughout. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Aubrey. All right, so now we're now going to familiarize ourselves with all of our panelists by doing a brief roundtable so that you can get to know their voices, but also know that you'll be hearing from them in more detail throughout the discussion. So starting with Dr. Do Reynoso, could you each introduce yourself with your name, title, and where you're calling from? Great. Thank you, Ashley. Hello, um, everyone. I'm Dr. Vondo Reynoso, the Santa Barbara County Public Health Director, and I am here in my office at our Santa Barbara Public Health Facility. And uh, my name is Dr. Jason Prostowski. I am an emergency physician um, from uh, the local Santa Barbara community. And I'm actually calling from my car. Uh, I was just out on the Navajo Nation on my way home to Santa Barbara. Uh, I also teach at UCSB, the underserved medicine seminar, and I'm the academic coordinator for the Medical Humanities Initiative, where we look at me clinical medicine, public health, through history of medicine, medical ethics, distributive justice, social medicine, and na uh, narrative uh, medicine is portrayed in literature and film. Um, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you, Ashley and Aubrey. Lawanda Lyons-Pruitt. I'm president of the Santa Maria Lompoc National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. 
We are also known as the NAACP, NAACP. Um, we were found in 1909. We fight uh, discrimination and racism of all kind. Uh, I am calling from Santa Maria. What's up, everybody? Frank Rodriguez here, he, him, el, um, here with CAUSE, the Central Coast Alliance United for Sustainable Economy in Santa Barbara. And I'm calling from Nomad Village, the mobile home park right next to El Sueño and the 101 freeway. Hi, everyone. I'm Professor Lily Williamson. I am an assistant professor in communication science at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. So I am in Madison in my what for the last year plus has been my work from home office. Great, so um, now that we have introduced all of our panelists, we can get right into our discussion here today. So shifting into our first general topic, how does medical racism prevent equitable access to quality care? Over the past year, as Ashley and I have reported on COVID case rates in Santa Barbara and the surrounding communities, it's been evident that the disproportionate tolls of COVID have only shed light on pre-existing structures of systemic racism and health equity, both locally and across the globe. So uh, I guess the first question I'll throw into the, into the talk is, so there's obviously a range of avenues um, that we can go uh, with all the issues that I described, um, but We'll, we'll turn it first to Dr. Prostowski. Um, could you begin by giving us a snapshot of some racial disparities you've seen throughout your career in healthcare, even prior to the pandemic? Wow, well, thanks, Aubrey. That's a, that's a really heavy question. And pre-pandemic already seems like it was so long ago. You know, in, in, clinical, in clinical medicine, a lot of times we like to think of uh, stress tests and, uh, you know, when a cardiologist will do a stress test, what we do is we think that there's some injury to the heart. So we, we put the patient on a treadmill and we, we increase the, the stress on the heart to see if there is structural disease and where there is structural disease. And I like to think of the COVID-19 pandemic as a stress test and something that has really um, exposed some of the structural injuries to our society when it comes to structural racism. Now, in my career, I, you know, I, I've spent time in inner city Chicago, inner city Atlanta, serving a predominantly African-American community. I've spent some time in the Navajo Nation um, serving an indigenous uh, Navajo community. And I've spent some time um, here in our local Santa Barbara community where we have um, a significant Latinx community that I have the great privilege of serving. And, you know, and always in emergency medicine. Now, emergency medicine, when we think about healthcare, from prevention to reaction, prevention being what Vaughn does every day, public health preventing injury and illness, to reaction, I'm at the far reactive end of the spectrum. By the time someone ends up in the emergency department, then a lot of the system has already failed. And what do these three communities all have in common? And what has COVID really exposed? Well, we know that uh, there is a historical context where these three communities have oftentimes experienced great poverty. There are crowded, overpopulated living situations uh, with intergenerational homes. There are often food deserts where people uh, tend to have inadequate access to healthy nutrition. There's poor access 
to education that everyone knows is the ultimate tool for upward social mobility. Um, most of the people in these communities work in low income wages where it's hard for them to work for home. They do not get many sick days and oftentimes they don't get healthcare benefits. So if they do get sick, they don't end up, they, they can't see a physician. So when we think about healthcare and major healthcare metrics, and what I do as an emergency physician, I see people who have cardiovascular disease. I see people who have uh, the manifestations of diabetes and poor nutrition. I see people who are victims of violence. Um, sure enough, all of these populations are, um, are, are, there's a disproportionate susceptibility to all of these um, injuries and illnesses. So when we talk about COVID, it is no surprise that the same groups of people who are the most vulnerable to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, violence, police brutality, um, diseases of poverty, diseases of poor access to healthcare, these communities are the exact same communities that A, were the most susceptible acquiring the SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 virus. And then once they stepping up in fundamentally. So when, when I think of racism in the emergency department, the 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 patients, the individuals in the communities that I see that are the most vulnerable were for, for a variety of different patterns of injury and illness are the exact same individuals and communities that we saw come into the emergency department with COVID and ultimately come into the ICU with COVID. So in some ways, one of the silver linings of COVID-19 is it's able to put a stress on the system and turn the lights on so we can have conversations like this today. And I, I thank you for the question, Aubrey. Thank you so much, Dr. Prasowski, for that wonderful overview. I particularly like the description of COVID as a sort of stress test for structural inequities that are already there. Um, we'd like to pass it over to you now, Dr. Williamson. We were wondering if you could provide us with a little bit more context into your research. So specifically, how might negative experiences within the healthcare system go on to perpetuate inequity and medical mistrust? Thanks, Ashley. So I tend to focus on medical mistrust. Um, and in my work, I tend to make a distinction um, of sorts between what it means to trust and what it means to be mistrustful that I'm happy to go into if people are interested. Um, but basically the way I think about mistrust is that it's beliefs and concerns about the motives of medical personnel and institutions, that they might not have patients' best interests at heart, um, might actively work against patients' best interests. And I use that definition because I am one of the scholars who sees medical mistrust as being connected to racism, marginalization, oppression. It means something very specific for the communities um, that we are all talking about and work with and for. Um, and so when we think about that definition and thinking about concerns about motives and actively working against patients' best interests, it's not really hard to imagine that negative experiences are gonna to contribute to medical mistrust, whether that be sort of explicit racism that comes from um, sort of an actor within the healthcare system or implicit things from invalidation, dismissiveness, um, even just low patient-centeredness. So not feeling as though the provider spent enough time with you or um, didn't pay attention to emotions. 
all of those things are going to contribute to belie beliefs about providers not having patients' best interests at heart. And we know that these sorts of instances and occurrences are more likely to happen within particular groups and particularly historically marginalized groups. And mistrust has implications not only for individuals' willingness to engage with the healthcare system, but also if they do make it into the healthcare system and they're with a provider, mistrust is going to impact the communication that happens between a provider and a patient. And that has implications not only for information exchange, but also patient satisfaction and adherence. Um, so at the end of the day, negative healthcare experiences, particularly when they intersect with racial discrimination experiences, um, are going to influence medical mistrust and that has consequences for willingness to engage in health behaviors. Thank you for describing some of your research, uh, Dr. Williamson. Um, so going off of these negative experiences with healthcare, as well as racism in the healthcare sphere and the subsequent medical mistrust, Dr. Dore Noso, could you detail the ways in which this was seen in the disproportionate impact seen in Santa Barbara County's migrant farm worker community? Frank sure. Lawanda and, oh, sorry, sorry oh. to interrupt, but um, Frank Lawanda and Dr. Prostowski, feel free to add in on this discussion if you'd like. Great, thanks, Aubrey. Um, so from the beginning, we began seeing more cases in Santa Maria and suspected pretty early on that COVID-19 was disproportionately affecting the Latinx community and in particular, um, the farm worker, uh, the farm worker community. Um, and as Jason, Jason mentioned, the pandemic is really only highlighting the health disparities that were already there. So historically, communities are disproportionately affected by poor health outcomes. Um, and those communities include uh, uh, ones that have community members um, uh, from a different race and ethnicity, as well as undocumented communities, uh, low wage earners, um, people experiencing homelessness and the incarcerated populations. So these are all underserved and under-resourced communities that typically would be hard hit um, in any health crisis. Um, so the disproportionality is primarily not a individual choice as some would think, but it is primarily uh, a result of longstanding social inequities that include uh, limited access to healthcare, affordable housing, uh, living wage, and nutritious foods. So based on what we knew of um, the community and health equity data, and what we were seeing uh, transpiring in, in urban areas early in the pandemic, we predicted that the burden of disease would fall in our underserved communities. In particular, we had already identified vulnerable populations such as the farm workers in North County. When that became a reality, we wanted to we wanted to um, base our policy um, on data. We knew that we would be challenged when we started uh, reallocating resources, when we, would, when we uh, needed to make policies. So we quickly integrated survey questions 
onto our um, standard contact tracing and confirmed as early as April 2020. So this is only roughly a month into the pandemic that our worries were true, that we were seeing a significantly higher number of cases um, among the Latinx community members who had language access issues, who were farm workers, ag workers, or other jobs where safety precautions were challenging. We also found quickly through those surveys that a significant number of our cases were unable to practice social distancing and other safety precautions in their living situations. Um, fast forward, our epidemiology reports continue to indicate that Latinos are disproportionately represented in Santa Barbara County um, among the COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, deaths, um, and that Santa Maria has the highest case count and second highest case rate. Um, and we're continuing to see that frontline occupations uh, have the higher frequencies, and these include act workers, healthcare workers, and laborers. And the frontline occupations um, that I just mentioned are less likely to be able to implement social distancing uh, and um, thus increase their risks of, of uh, contracting COVID-19. Um, so we were also finding that among farm workers, uh, uh, along with the increase in cases, uh, it was brought up uh, to our attention by our community partners that there were lack of access to prevention efforts such as information about COVID-19, um, safety precaution measures like the uh, having masks and hand washing and the ability to social distancing at work during transport and at home. Um, and access to, to simple things early on, like testing, isolation and quarantine, and now currently vaccines. So when we heard that these were concerns, we immediately pivot and allocated resources. Uh, uh, for instance, when we heard that uh, farm workers uh, were worried about where to get tested and, how, and, and the cost, we quickly uh, made a policy that our healthcare centers, that all five of them would offer free testing to anybody in the community, regardless of what the testing will show, and that we committed to um, offering supportive services when needed, wraparound services, linking community members to needed supportive services. Um, and um, so I am extremely grateful for the close collaboration that I have um, with, with, with Frank and Cause, with Lawanda and the NAACP and other community agencies, because through th this collaboration, we were able to hear the advocacy and pivot and make sure um, that resources uh, were in place to um, ensure that our farm workers have equitable access to the services and the information that they need to be healthy. Thank you so much, Dr. Dovernoso. Um, and along the lines of collaboration with community entities, we actually wanted to hear from both Lawanda and Frank, but Lawanda first, um, speaking of structural inequities that were already in place prior to COVID, as we've all been speaking about so far, um, Lawanda, we wanted to touch on your experience as a resident of Santa Barbara for decades, and you've served for many years as the chief investigator of the Public Defender's Office. You were the first African-American woman in California to hold that position. 
Um, and as, as you mentioned, you now serve as the president of the NAACP of Santa Maria and Lompoc, which has also been fighting for proper medical care for those who are incarcerated in Santa Barbara County. So we were just wondering if you could give us an overview of the social and medical treatment of the Black community here in Santa Barbara and what historical roots mistrust and medicine has for the Black community. Thank you, Ashley. Um, no community has been more disproportionately impacted than the Black, African-American, the Latinx, and the Native American communities. We know that in California, Blacks are twice as likely to die from COVID. And the federal data shows that African-Americans, Latinx, and Native Americans in the United States have been three times more likely to contract uh, COVID than white residents and nearly twice as likely to die from it. But while I cannot speak specifically about black health in Santa Barbara County, um, because it's just not there, the information is not there. I can tell you that 450 people have died from the uh, public health, Santa Barbara County public health dashboard. And of that 50% have been Latinx, even though Latinx only make up 48% of the population. Um, I can speak overall about what has happened and is happening to African-Americans and black as far as health in the United States. Um, we know that in the larger cities like New York, Detroit, Milwaukee, uh, there was a higher percentage of African-Americans that died versus some other of our US cities. Um, in fact, with the help of Dr. Melissa Smith, MD, and the Director of Health Equity Initiatives at UCSB, we, the NAACP, are using collaborative research that is then designed to ensure and establish structures for participation by communities affected by the issue being set it, COVID, uh, representatives of organizations in AACP and research in all aspects of the research process to improve health and the well being through action, including social change. And this collaboration is known as community based participatory research, CBPR. Um, that said, so right now, what we're doing is we're presently using. Uh, CBPR to determine the impact of COVID on Blacks and African Americans in Santa Barbara County. And additionally, our national office, the NAACP, has launched a preparatory research to monitor health outcomes and ongoing social and economic impact including information and assets, the attitudes about vaccine, employment, education, and other factors as Af African-Americans continue to navigate the public health crisis. Thank you for your answer, Lawanda, and for sharing all those resources as well. Um, it's good to see that there's a community effort and 
another organization. Um, I'm glad Frank has made it back to the meeting. Um, cause, uh, so Frank, as a longtime resident of Santa Barbara um, and the work you've done with Cause, can you speak on um, some of the experiences you heard about in terms of Indigenous and Latinx people um, having, reliable, having reliable access to healthcare and the disproportionate impact on Hispanic communities um, in the county during the pandemic? Yeah, thank you everybody. Um, and, and definitely had an internet scare, but I'm back and I'm here with you all. Um, and yeah, for, for us as cause, we definitely have an advocacy focus, um, really advocating at the municipal, at the county and at the state level over the years, especially making sure um, um, immigrant communities, especially communities um, that don't speak English, having access um, to our, our local governments and being heard. Um, and the last few years, especially in response to the Thomas fire and the Montecito debris flows, when we had an ecological disaster, it's really understanding what societal safety nets we have in place to ensure that our communities aren't falling through the cracks, especially knowing like all the panelists have, have already elevated um, those systemic, those those historical inequities that have continued and have been perpetuated um, by just the setup and continuation of the institutions that we have in play um, from, from governance all the way into just how our society works. Um, one of those huge campaigns for us has been, um, especially for the 805 Immigrant Coalition um, that really gathers many um, immigrant rights activists throughout Santa Barbara and Ventura counties um, is talking about health for all and how do we um, have that um, health access that we're talking about, um, especially the lack of health access that a lot of the undocumented community has had. Um, after the Thomas Fire and Montecito debris flows, um, of course, there was a lot of um, financial assistance provided by FEMA um, to the natural disaster, um, something that a lot of undocumented community members did not have access to, hence the starting of the 805 UndocuFund that to this moment, um, um, in continuation of responding to ecological disasters and to this COVID-19 global pandemic, have been able to distribute over $8 million to families throughout the region. Um, but at the end, we know this is a Band-Aid solution to really institutionalize these support systems, let it be unemployment benefits. Um, but really right now is what we're thinking about is health access where um, um, undocumented adults and seniors still don't have access to healthcare and something we continue to advocate for. Um, so I appreciate the, the panelists really elevating um, the lack of health access inter intertwined with a lot of many different um, um, assets and, and, and valuable necessities that folks need in order to, to survive. Um, and something I'm really thinking about in, in hearing the other panelists and something I want to elevate um, as being here with cause is those societal safety nets kind of really making sense what they are and how do we make ensure that everyone has access to them so we don't let people fall through the cracks. Thank you so much, Frank. Um, and we're glad that you're back too with the call. Um, yeah, so speaking of the societal safety nets and lack of access, that actually transitions perfectly into our next topic, which has to do with the role of communication and misinformation in perpetuating racial health, racial health disparities um, and how lack, lack of access to reliable information can actually perpetuate those disparities. So throughout the pandemic, we've seen how effective and ineffective messaging plays out in regards to the population's desire and ability to follow medical advice. This past year has only strengthened our knowledge that the pandemic 
has been a communication issue as much as a health one. We'd like to take this portion of the discussion to analyze how we as journalists, public health leaders, medical professionals, and community advocates can better communicate in times of crisis, especially when it comes to advocating for vulnerable communities. So Dr. Williamson, we know you already touched on this a bit, um, but getting into the heart of your research, we were wondering if you could explain a bit more um, about what you've studied in terms of the relationship between communication and medical mistrust. Sure, so um, as a communication scholar, one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is sort of where medical mistrust beliefs sort of originate, what contributes to them. And one of the things, at least in terms of, there's a bit of a disconnect between the scholarship and what happens in everyday life in communities in terms of the scholarship really focuses on personal experiences, which is part of it, but we watch the news, we scroll through social media, we talk to our family and friends, and those are other ways that we learn about the world. So it's not just an individual's experiences, it's also these vicarious experiences that can come from watching the news, talking to family and friends, which in a lot of ways serves as a reminder that it's not an individual issue. It's not always a matter of an individual healthcare provider, that there are structural issues that are happening. And thus we see it in so many places. And so it's not just about sort of a single person's um, experiences. For instance, um, I did some focus groups in Chicago talking to African-Americans about perceptions around organ donation, but so much of that conversation was about medical mistrust. And it wasn't just, I had these negative experiences. It was also, I talked to family and friends. I know what happens when people who look like me engage in these systems. And they pointed to not only things related to organ donation, but sort of distrust in terms of medical institutions and what medical institutions have historically done, medical institutions as representative of institutions in the US more broadly, as well as just society. They were like, I know what it means to walk out of my door as a black person. I can't trust someone who, I can't trust white people in general. So if I go to a white provider and they're trying to talk to me about organ donation, why would I feel like that's safe? Why would I feel like they had my best interests at heart? Um, and so in those conversations, they very much pointed to in a personal conversation as well as news media. They had recently seen um, a news story where a Latina woman had needed an organ. Her brother was a match and they deported him regardless, knowing that he was a match. And they pointed to that as look at how these systems aren't designed for marginalized communities. So we have to make sure that we're thinking more broadly in the ways in which vicarious experiences also impact because communication occurs. Since those focus groups, I've done survey work that supports the idea that personal, interpersonal, and mediated experiences are associated with increased medical mistrust. Um, and then thinking about misinformation, this is a a realm that I'm starting to delve into. Um, I have colleagues in communication who this is all they think about, particularly in the realm of politics, but I'm starting to think about what that means for sort of interactions with medical mistrust. Um, and I think it's important to realize that there's sort of two things that can simultaneously be happening because misinformation could in some ways contribute to an increase medical mistrust, particularly in context-specific mistrust. So for instance, things that are directly related to the COVID-19 vaccine, for instance. 
but I do think we have to be careful um, and not sort of fall into the trap of thinking that medical mistrust is just the result of members of marginalized communities having sort of erroneous beliefs or believing things that aren't true because then it places the onus and makes it seem like the root of the issue is within individuals instead of within systems. And so while that could be one thing that's happening, I think it's probably um, more likely that mistrust impacts the way that misinformation is sort of processed and the effects that it has. So mistrust could affect which sources of that misinformation are believed. Um, and due to the legacy and continued racism, some of the misinformation could likely resonate with existing ideas and beliefs about the healthcare system. If I already think that the system has negative motives, that actors in the system are corrupt, and then I hear stories or rumors that align with that, um, that makes it more likely to sort of be taken up. So there's sort of two things happening, and I think we have to be careful that when we start talking about misinformation and its relationship to medical mistrust, that we don't fall into the trap of shifting the onus onto individuals and communities as opposed to highlighting and thinking about the structures and the systems that created um, the situation in the first place. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Williamson. Um, and kind of going off of I'm glad that you you brought up how it can be how medical mistrust uh, happens on a very interpersonal level as well. And um, going into, you know, the the uh, perspectives of medical professionals um, and how uh, they consider implicit bias. Um, this is so I'll have Dr. Krastowski, um answer this first and then Dr. Do Reynoso, you can come in. Um, how can medical health professionals and public health leaders go even further to adopt training rooted in anti-racism in fostering trust within marginalized communities? Um, and what has Santa Barbara Public Health done to address um, mistrust and uh, a lack of quality care for communities of color? What do you think still could be done and could have been better from a communication standpoint as well. Hey, Aubrey, thank you so much for that question. Uh, let, me, let me take a stab at that first. And I, before I do, I just wanna kind of repeat something that Professor Williamson said that I think is really key. And I hope if any of our students are listening in on this and are interested in a career in healthcare, they're kind of taking notes that when a vulnerable community mistrusts us as the healthcare profession, we should not victim blame them. They mistrust us for a very important reason that is oftentimes, if not always, based in historical context. They mistrust us because we betrayed their trust in the past and oftentimes consistently. And, you know, and I think it's important for us to take pause and just acknowledge that and also uh, Professor Williamson, I'd love to take your class and learn more about this because I think we in healthcare have a lot to learn from scholars in communication about how to engage uh, marginalized and vulnerable individuals and communities, um, you know, to get them to trust our uh, and to engage in a therapeutic relationship so that we can get them healthier. So it, implicit bias is a tough question. And, and here there's a couple premises you kind of have to accept is number one, um, inequities occur. 
uh, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm not a communication scholar. And you have to accept the fact that data is very clear that an African-American man, 55 years old, shows up to the ER with chest pain. Uh, a white man, age 55, shows up to the ER with chest pain. One of them is probably getting a cardiac catheterization. The other one probably is not. An African-American woman in Houston is far more likely to die in during childbirth than a Caucasian woman. These disparities exist. We have implicit bias. I am, as a human being, the accumulation of my life experience. That's a reality. I have spent my entire life listening to my parents, watching movies and television, being in society, and that society projects certain very unhealthy stereotypes that I, whether I consciously am aware of it or not, am, is affecting my behavior. And at the end of the day, it is as a physician, as a physician in pandemic, scratch that, as a physician in general, when someone comes into my emergency department, I owe it to them to give them the absolute best quality of care available. And if I am treating one person differently than another, because of something that is unconscious deep within my psyche, whether it's the color of their skin, their gender, the, the gods they pray to, the gender they identify with, it doesn't matter. They're in my ER and it's my job to take care of them. So the question now is, is what do I do about implicit bias? I know I have it, everyone has it. The question is, where is my implicit bias? How is it affecting my patient care? And what can I do about it? And I think there's both external and internal approaches. The external approaches are the big, huge ones that Dr. Um, that Dr. De Reynosa and Melissa Smith can talk about in a lot more detail. These are, these are the big structural issues, like, like, like getting a, a more diverse interdisciplinary professionals from a, a diverse ethnic background, especially in leadership positions in clinical healthcare and public health. If I am in the ER and I have a colleague um, who taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, I couldn't help but notice you're treating this person a little differently, it's important for me to acknowledge that colleague's observation and to change my behavior. And what we need is we need more African-American, Latinx, indigenous physicians, and executive leadership in clinical medicine and public health, which, beget, which gets to some of uh, the disparities when it comes to medical education. We need to increase enrollment of uh, various um, backgrounds into medical education, and we need to make sure that they're mentored and nurtured into leadership positions. The second component is medical education, is we need more um, systematic medical education that implicit bias exists, and at the end of the day, our job is to improve health. And if we are giving, if we're improving health for one population differently than another, we need to know about it because once we know about it, then we can start to fix it. The internal part is a little bit more touchy. Um, and, and this is where uh, for any of the students listening in, especially if you took my underserved medicine seminar, hopefully you're aware being a physician, being a nurse, being a leader in clinical medicine and public health, you have to have some degree of self-reflection and some degree of insight. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. That's why they call it the art of medicine. We have to know that we are always growing. We may make mistakes. That's what being a human being is, but we cannot dig in onto our mistakes. We have to acknowledge when we're treating people differently and to look inward 
why are we treating some people differently and what can we do about it as individual clinicians? I, I know Vaughn has a far more articulate and sophisticated mm -hmm. response because she's smarter than me and, and always has better answers. But uh, hopefully I set you up for a good assist, Vaughn. So um, Jason, thank you. I am always marveling um, at your passion. Um, and I don't know if I can say it any better than what you just shared. Um, but I think that, that um, to acknowledge the mistrust for me is key. Uh, whether we have been complicit or explicit or, um, or, or uh, whatever, I think as part of the system, that our community uh, has been hurt by, uh, to acknowledging um, acknowledging the injustices, acknowledging the 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 mistrust. I think it is a good starting point. Um, I think then after acknowledging that there have been historical missteps, abuse um, of power, and um, it's a first step and then and then doing something about it. So throughout this pandemic, uh, to address the mistrust and to engender trust uh, and to build confidence in public health, we have been very diligent in partnering with trusted community advocates and leaders um, to disseminate the information and the resources in an appropriate context that can be easily received. And I think that's really key. Um, if there is mistrust in the uh, government, it, it, uh, people aren't gonna hear me as a representative of the government, but they would be more open to hearing someone that um, is in the community that, that, that they readily trust. Um, so for example, we have partnered with Cause, with MyCop, with Erencia Indígena, with the uh, with Lawanda and NAACP and others for outreach efforts to 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 amplify the messages that we are wanting our community uh, members to hear. And as Frank mentioned, um, we 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 have to make sure that safety nets are in place. Um, so that even through the mistrust, uh, that no one falls through the crack. And I am so humbled and so thankful that we have community members who are safeguarding these safety nets with us. Um, I think the other key to addressing the, the um, mistrust is um, leaders being accessible to our partners um, and our community members, uh, no matter who they are. Um, I think by being accessible um, is key to engendering trust and, and to build confidence. Um, I myself um, have uh, disclosed my, my cell phone and I've taken calls from community members all hours of the day, um, every day of the week to coordinate testing, uh, to, to um, provide isolation and quarantine to provide vaccine information and to even coordinate homeless community members in, um, you know, who are elderly, who are undocumented uh, to make sure that they have safe shelter uh, um, and, and, and that they can, can be safe. Um, so, so the other thing is 
in, with regards to um, being accessible, it's creating space where information can be shared and collaboration can be built. And so for instance, um, we participate in the Friday Latinx uh, and Indigenous uh, Migrant COVID-19 Task Force briefings um, so that we can hear concerns and be able to, to respond. Uh, we also have been uh, uh, participating in town halls where community members can dialogue with public health leadership and that any questions will be answered. So what could we have done better? Um, while I so appreciate the partnerships that I had, that public has had with CAUSE, MICOP, and UCSB, I wish that we had relationships with other community organizations as well. Um, it's an understatement to say that uh, it was pretty tough in the first six months of the pandemic um, to respond to this historical health crisis and also to find time to quickly build new partnerships. Uh, that was pretty tough. So moving forward, we will be partnering up with six additional community members to build the infrastructure um, in both of our organizations around health equity um, so that together we can do outreach and provide services um, and, and make sure that barriers are removed uh, with regards to vaccine access. Um, moving on after, uh, if we can ever get out of this pandemic, but yes, um, moving forward, in addition to the work that we are currently doing in responding to uh, COVID-19, we will be forming a health equity work group that will be broadly represented by community members and, and organizations so that public health and the county system can be informed and, and that we can be guided in, in being innovative with systems change, with policies change. Um, so ultimately resources can be allocated to address the conditions where our communities live, work, learn and play where it isn't optimal right now, we will make it optimal. So I wanna end with um, an, a, a reflection that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has indeed been unparalleled in how, how it has affected almost all of us in every aspect um, of our lives. It has heightened awareness of, of inequities and disparities in our community. I don't think there's any other event in modern history that has had this power to alter um, perceptions and to right size and to reset um, our commitment to, to the community. I think that um, Santa Barbara County is home to a wealth of diverse communities, uh, uh, perspectives, challenges, but we've triumphed and we've shown that we've been resilient. And there's plenty of opportunities moving forward for equity and growth. And the Santa Barbara County Public Health Department is committed to meeting the challenge of pursuing health equity um, along with all um, everyone um, on this group and in the community so that at the end of the day, um, in a year, in two years, 
we can proudly say that we've done our best and that lives um, have been improved, that everyone who lives, works, and plays in our community has had a better opportunity. So we look forward to standing with you in addressing this and future challenges that come our way and, and to celebrate how health equity for each of us really means lifting up all of us as a community. Thank you so much, Dr. Dorinoso. And now transitioning into our third and final topic of the evening, where we'll get to hear more from Frank and Lawanda as well, um, has to do with community partnerships and where do we go from here after having this year of a pandemic. So with case rates declining and vaccination numbers increasing, along with recent relaxed guidance from the CDC, many are sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of COVID. Um, but how can we take what we've learned about our structural inequities and communication tactics this year and fight for meaningful change? Uh, so Lawanda, your work spreading reliable information through personal social channels and door-to-door -door campaigns has received a lot of praise and has also highlighted the power of community partnerships and public health messaging, like Dr. Dorinoso mentioned. So looking forward, how can public health leaders and medical professionals directly partner with community members to build trust in medicine and access to quality care? Thank you, Ashley. Um, I, I uh, believe that um, Dr. Williamson, Dr. Bond, and Dr. Postoski have done a good job of answering the questions. Um, what I will say, um, Dr. Potoski talked about uh, implicit bias. The Black community call it everyday racism. And so we need to acknowledge that. We don't consider it implicit bias. Uh, and I can believe that I speak for the Black community when I say that. Black people, if, if something happens um, where they do not receive equal treatment, it's not considered uh, implicit bias. It is considered everyday racism. And I read a lot and I've been reading about uh, COVID and how it affects black people and uh, why some black people are hesitant to, to get the vaccine. And um, they quoted a 54 year old math teacher. By the way, I have um, three sisters and they all have at least a master's degree. One was actually in med school. They live in uh, Chicago. Now, neither, none of those sisters have received the vaccine. So that tells me something there, that those three sisters with master's degrees and education have not uh, received the vaccine yet. But um, this 54-year-old math teacher, I think he said it best, Black people don't have equal access to things like quality education, good health care, safe communities, so they don't see the vaccine any different. It's like everything else in our society. It's never equal access for Black people. The way I see it is that the benefits, we have to acknowledge the benefits. I mean, Blacks and uh, people of color, Latinx, Native Americans, um, Asian Americans are dying at twice the rate of anyone else in the United States. 
So we need to look at it in terms of saving our lives. Um, secondly, we need to acknowledge the trauma. And there has been lots of trauma. Um, I don't know any black person and I don't care how young they are from 15 years old on up. When you start talking about the vaccine, we'll not talk about that 40 year old Tuskegee, Tuskegee study. They're, they're absolutely, that's the first thing that they're gonna talk about. A lot of, uh, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the um, Henriette, Henriette Lack case uh, where her cancer cells was used for medical research without her knowledge and without her family's uh, knowledge and our financial compensation. But those are cases where the black community have lost trust. And that trust is, is trauma, it's never been acknowledged. And so what we need to do is to acknowledge that and we need trusted leaders like Dr. Bunn, like Professor Williamson, like Dr. Praskowski, like Frank. We have to have trusted leaders in our community uh, that have a relationship with our community to acknowledge, okay, I, I acknowledge your trauma, I acknowledge your pain, but we believe that the benefits outweigh the, weigh the risk. Um, so one thing that we've done, um, we have partnered in addition to the public health department, uh, we hope to partner with CALS, uh, MECOMP, uh, we have partnered with faith-based community. And what we're doing is uh, I actually haven't started uh, the plan that I have, but my plan is to actually go to church every Sunday. I go to church every Sunday anyway, but I plan to go to those churches because I'm gonna hit all of those churches and talk to them and make announcements that the benefits outweigh the risk and why it is important to receive the vaccine. Um, let's see, got a little bit off of what my topic. Um, here in Santa Barbara County, I do believe that the vaccine rollout was slow, but I believe that our governor, the uh, California Department of Health, our Surgeon General, our Public Health Doc Director, Dr. Bunn, um, our Medical Re Director, Dr. Ansong, they've done a great job of being at the forefront, giving us messaging, proper messaging, uh, and we've asked for it. everything that we've asked for, we've been able to get like one thing that, um, that we had is um, we had uh, brochures and, and things that we were gonna give to our community, but they had pictures of white people on it. We're going into a black neighborhood and we're talking to black people, but we're giving them a brochure with white people on it. So they need, like, we need people that look like us. If you go into the Latinx community, you should have people on those brochures that look like you so that people identify with that. Um, uh, implementing policies that have helped, for instance, um, Dr. Bon mentioned the um, uh, Latinx Migrant Health Task Force that we meet every two weeks. Uh, at one time, it was weekly. Um, 
we, uh, she's constantly looking at equity and to make sure that we have equity. Like now uh, they've opened the uh, fair park in Santa Maria because Santa Maria is behind in terms of when we look at the bat scene. And so she's opened the fair park. We have pop-up clinics. And by the way, we have a pop-up clinic on Thursday in Lompoc at Grace Temple Missionary Baptist Church. Um, we still have lots of slots and we would like for, we'll accept walk-ups, but we would like for people to come to those because we are in your community and every message where we think that we can be in your community, where it will actually help you and we will give, you will get those benefits we have communicated that to Dr. Bond and to her team. So it's, it's real important that we continue to do that. Um, we need to push for help here in our communities. And with, um, I believe with the uh, pop-up clinics and the things that we're doing, like me going to church, um, I've done uh, TV interviews, uh, lots of uh, radio spots, newspapers, and um, we actually have a, um, a radio spot, a TV spot that will air tomorrow where I'm saying to my community as the trusted, trusted messenger, I'm giving you an experience that I had where I actually COVID struck my family and it's very close to me where I personally lost my sister four years younger. And I want people to know that and to know the devastation that that has caused me and has caused my family. And um, with that, I'll turn it over to Frank. Thank you, Luanda. Um, and yeah, it's been a the pleasure to, to, to be um, in those Friday meetings um, and being able to facilitate those, especially um, ending and saying like, how are we um, really thinking about changing the institutions we're a part of, um, really theorizing about that, um, um, and especially knowing that a lot of this theorizing hasn't happened. Um, a lot of the the kind of same models of institutions we kind of just work with, um, because a lot of us, um, um, especially folks that aren't able to participate um, in these in these spaces, um, um, work so much we don't have time to really not only just dedicate time to our families. Um, even though, of course, a long time ago, we, we fought for an eight-hour workday. We know that most people don't don't and cannot suffice living off an eight-hour workday. Um, I wanted to go back to something I really appreciated from Professor Williamson in, in looking at looking at the, the systems rather than, than the individual. Um, and knowing that a lot of these systems have been repeated. Um, here in California, um, when we had Prop 187, um, that said that undocumented folks couldn't access our healthcare systems and our schools. Um, folks still remember that. Um, I still remember being taken to Casa La Raza um, here in Santa Barbara um, when I was at Franklin Elementary because folks were scared of sending their kids to school, um, especially our parents who, who didn't know what was happening. Only that you might be deported if you were sent to school. You might be deported if you were gonna enter a hospitals. Um, and that was in the 90s. Um, people don't forget that. Um, it's thinking about right now where we've had um, a lot of debates at the, the federal level about public charge, a test for, for working visas for, for a lot of our undocumented communities and the fears of how that is tangled within our healthcare systems. 
um, and especially with the latest president, using that as um, a xenophobic and racist rhetoric to not only confuse, but continue the, the spread and the racist kind of fear-mongering tactics that we continue to see with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the latter part of the 19th century um, to the treatment of the Japanese folks, especially here um, around UCSB when the military was was built, base was built um, there um, um, at, after um, and during World War II. So thinking about these systems and how communities of color, especially Asian Pacific Islander, the Black community, the Latinx Indigenous community, um, it's how do we make sense and, and give space as we did at the start of this acknowledging we, we're, we're on Chumash land, like give space to that theorizing, especially that theorizing that kind of um, our, our past generations maybe didn't have, um, and not that they didn't attempt, we know that past generations really attempted to really push for that social justice lens, but what can we, what steps we can do now and so I'll end in really emphasizing, I think the piece I've appreciated the most in facilitating those meetings is the language justice component um, and making sure that not only Spanish speaking, but also indigenous speaking specifically focusing on Misteco speaking communities, but knowing that is not enough, knowing that we have a lot of immigrant communities that are part of um, um, our community here in Santa Barbara and how do we use um, language and the diversity of language as that theorizing kind of um, um, attempt of making more accessible our municipal, our county and state legislative bodies, but also administrative bodies, um, such as the public health department and other facets. So it's been an honor to, to be a part of that process and really try to see, particularly in, in um, the facet of language and language access into these meetings. Um, because I think we can't approach these conversations anymore in terms of um, we can't create this space because there's not enough folks um, to be there or that these communities don't come to the, to the meeting anyway. Um, I think we need to get away from that and really try to work at empowering communities to come up with the solutions and how do we facilitate that process rather than using this old banking model of here's the information, this is what you do with it, but how do we have a more praxis, a more um, um, reflection and action as we approach these conversations and language justice is needed in order to do that. Thank you so much, Frank. Um, and our final speaker before we get into our Q&A, we'd like to echo a lot of what you were saying about um, looking at the system-wide lens. So we wanted to, to uh, toss it back to you, Dr. Williamson. So looking at on that wider societal lens, how do you think medical professionals and health communicators can go about building up trust with communities that have been previously wronged by these institutions? And if this is even possible, what will it take? Um, so I'll be brief. I really just wanted to sort of reiterate and uplift um, things that my fellow panelists have said. Um, when I thought about this, the three biggest things for me were partnership, sort of transparency and acknowledgement, um, and taking a holistic approach. I think particularly coming from academia, it's important to not come into communities and assume we know exactly what they need. And particularly for medical mistrust, people can have you know, if we ask on a survey, how mistrustful are you and ask those items, you can have individuals sort of report the same levels of medical mistrust, but how they arrived at that and the underlying beliefs can be different. And so we need to know what sort of led on that pathway. And so those partnerships are super important and it's important that we're working with and for communities, not on communities. So um, all the partnerships that everyone has been talking about, I think are 
um, super important. Um, in terms of sort of acknowledgement, um, I've done some experimental work looking at sort of news stories with racial discrimination experiences either being explicitly mentioned or sort of colorblind reporting where it's clear that race and racism are at issue but isn't explicitly acknowledged. And actually what I found is that those implicit sort of hidden racial discrimination stories increase medical mistrust above even just explicit mentions, which suggests that that hidden and lack of acknowledgement is what triggers it. There's no difference between explicitly mentioning racial discrimination and sort of a story that didn't mention racial discrimination at all. The baseline for people is that racial discrimination exists. And so it's that lack of acknowledgement that can trigger increased um, medical mistrust. And so I think it's important that we're upfront about what has happened historically and what continues to happen. Um, and remembering that it's not just about the past. Um, as Lawanda was mentioning, you will hear Black um, folks a lot bring up Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks. Um, and I think that occasionally people from outside of those communities take that to mean that, oh, well, that's something that's happened in the past. When really Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks, when people bring them up, are shorthand um, for negative healthcare experiences and racial discrimination experiences. It's the salient example. Um, so I think that it's important that we are transparent. Um, and then the other thing is to remember that we need to take sort of a holistic approach because of the things that Frank and Dr. Prostowski were talking about. It's about these institutions and these systems and they're intertwined. So there are tons of things that people may not sort of in everyday life think of as connected to health and health policy, zoning laws, education, immigration policies, but all of these things not only impact health, but that sort of implicit explicit study, three out of the four topics that I use for that weren't, were outside of the health context. So racial discrimination in other contexts serves as a reminder for historically marginalized communities about the ways in which these systems and structures have failed and harmed um, communities. Thank you for those words, Dr. Williamson, and thank you to all of our panelists for those insightful perspectives on this very large and pressing topic. Um, we really appreciate all that you've shared. Um, given it's it's such a broad um, issue going on right now. So we'd like to turn it over to some of our audience members for Q&A por portion. And we already have some questions in the chat. So um, I'll go ahead and ask this first one. Um, and this is directed to the entire panel. Um, how can community members that are not perhaps in the medical field or hold these positions like students support these disadvantaged groups specifically in ways that will help in the medical and health sphere. Dr. Prostowski, you can, uh, you can go for it. Um, so so for, for students specifically, um, the answer, my first answer, I have two answers for you. The first is one is to, to show up. Um, you know, don't merely express interest, but if anything that Luanda or Frank said to you, sings to you, reach out to them, get involved, show up. The second thing is, is to begin to develop a skill set where you can have impact. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for all of the, uh, the amazing wisdom shared by this panel. 
because you know, for me in, in healthcare, my goal at the end of the day is for people to be healthy, recognizing that COVID is a public health crisis, that structural racism is a public health crisis. And we in medicine, as, as broken as the system is, we do not have all the answers, we need help. And if you as the younger generation see something that we're not seeing, show up, find an organization that, that is allied with your values, begin to learn how to critically appraise the scientific research and begin to learn how to develop your advocacy voice and how to get involved in community organizing and how to start the, the process of addressing these, these interdisciplinary solutions to mistrust. Um, ultimately, I think Vaughn said it best. I mean, it involves partnerships, it involves building, nurturing and maintaining relationships. And, um, and I think that for students, please get involved and start to develop this tool chest of skill sets to get involved. Well said, Jason. I, in terms of cause, we could definitely, an 805 immigrant that I helped coordinate um, can definitely talk about some advocacy efforts that are upcoming. Um, um, one of them is we, we are joining um, um, immigrant rights organizations throughout the state for Immigrant Lobby Day. Um, and that's going to be virtually um, in Sacramento um, this May 25th, Tuesday, May 25th. Um, folks can find out more at 805immigrant.org or at 805immigrante.org. Um, and this is where we've been advocating along the California Immigrant Policy Center the last 20 years that was actually launched in um, response to Prop 187 when, when um, um, undocumented folks were, were attacked back in the 90s. Um, and one campaign that we're really advocating for is the healthcare um, for all seniors, undocumented seniors. At the moment, we have it for up to 26 year olds, um, um, have access, undocumented 26 year olds and under have access to Medi-Cal here in California. Um, so the next big step is to get it for 65 and over. Um, so that is a bill that, that we're really pushing for. Um, the second opportunity um, that folks can find at 805 Immigrant um, the org as well is we have the upcoming truth act forum um, with our county board of supervisors um, and that's where we um, the our local sheriff's um, office here in santa barbara county has to discuss their relationship with ice or immigration customs enforcement within our county jail um, we appreciate this conversation especially um, um, really the difficult conversation and talking about how do we support communities who are incarcerated especially communities of color um, and so we're, we're really here in terms of talking about the entanglement um, and the lack of trust that's caused when there is an entanglement um, and, and, a, and a ripping of community members um, when folks do enter our um, carceral system here in the county. So that's going to be June 22nd during the Board of Supervisors meeting, um, which is also on Tuesday. And again, Immigrant Lobby Day is going to be May 22nd. Thanks, y'all, for giving me the time to say that. I, um, I agree with Frank and Dr. Prokoski. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Prokoski. Um, I would just add, um, anyone who um, is an activist will welcome you. So you don't need to be an activist. You have to start somewhere. So you'll be welcome. Um, maybe you're afraid to speak out. Uh, trust me, someone will amplify uh, what you want to say. 
So uh, don't feel like um, that just because you don't want to speak up and speak out uh, that you can't be active in, in an organization because there's plenty of work that you can do. The only thing I would add to what uh, Jason, Lawanda, and Frank has shared is that um, public health, uh, we rely on community members. We rely on um, advocates and you don't have to be part of an organization. Um, so you don't have to be part of our organization. Um, so I think that I really appreciate what, what uh, Jason shed, said, which is show up. And uh, what Frank has offered opportunities, Lawanda has offered opportunities, show up even for a couple hours. And through that interaction, you are better equipped, you will be informed, and you can be that boots on the ground for public health um, to, to, to change lives one at a time or to change lives on a policy or a, a systems level. One more thing I would add is, uh, so if you don't want to join an organization, there are plenty of uh, meetings like Board of Supervisors. Uh -huh. There's There are city council meetings. Uh, start looking at their agendas, their online, and uh, start looking at their agenda. They always have a public comment um, section and you will see people, and pretty soon you realize is a lot of times the same activists, but they're speaking up and speaking out. And we need that. We definitely need that. And I would add, Luanda, that is an excellent, excellent point. We need informed community advocates to show up and offer your perspective at the board, but not only at the board, at, at city councils. Oftentimes there's a void and when there's a void, people do weird things, people form weird policies. And it's just so much easier to be ahead of the game and offer your perspective, uh, boots on the ground, unique perspectives, uh, rather than letting it go and be codified in, as an ordinance or as a law and then try to undo it. And if I can add one small thing, there's probably some students that are listening in on this who are, are studying science because they want a career in healthcare. 30% uh, of the incoming UCSB class identifies as wanting a career somewhere in healthcare. And, and you may be listening into on this in the radio or watching this thinking, you know what? I wanna be an activist, but I'm not quite ready. So if now is not your chapter to show up, um, the, the third option is, is pay attention and take notes because right now may not be your time to be an activist. Maybe you're too busy studying for the MCAT or studying for biochemistry, but tomorrow may be your time. And when it is your time, you need to know who the leaders in the community are. You need to know the Franks and the Luandas uh, in the community because they are your allies in reaching out to the community so that you can advocate for the health of the community you serve. So if now's not the time to show up, Take notes. You have watched the great, the worst pandemic in a hundred years, and you've watched the accumulation of hundreds of years of structural racism come to a tipping point. Um, and and this will, like it or not, impact your future, um, especially if you go into healthcare. But whatever you do, it will impact your future. Thank you so much for those last words, Dr. Prasovsky, and everyone so much for answering that question. 
Um, we are now just going to, for the sake of time, unfortunately, we can't answer any more questions, even though I'm, I'm sure we could go on and on with all of the insight you guys all provided during this panel was excellent. Um, but as you can see here, here's some resources. Um, we have, you know, the CDC, but then also the individual um, sites that you can find more information about each of our panelists on. You can also go to kcsb.org slash category slash news to hear individual interviews with each of our panelists that Aubrey and I conducted prior to this panel if you'd like to hear more about each of them. And then also you can tune in to KCSB 91.9 FM this upcoming Thursday, May 20th at 5 p.m. for the full audio replay of this event. And it will also be um, posted, the video recording will also be posted on our Facebook and YouTube pages later as well. Before you all go, we just wanted to say thank you again to all of our wonderful panelists for being here today, taking time out of your busy schedules. And we'd also like to thank our amazing team at KCSB for helping us put together this panel with a special thanks to Alexander Goldberg, Eric Fredericky, Lisa Osborne, Jennifer Kaiser, Ted Coe, Zena Omar, Maddie Miller, and Emma Greenberg. A final reminder that this talk has been recorded and will be available on all of our social media platforms shortly. And thank you so much to our audience once again for joining us for this important conversation. We hope to see you next time, ideally in person. Um, just take care and have a great rest of your week. Thank you all so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Aubrey, for coordinating this. This has been an amazing space. Thank you all. Thank you. I enjoyed sharing space with you today. Thank you, Dr. Thank Vaughan. you. All right. Thank you. What an, Thank what you. an honor and privilege it is to serve our community alongside each and every one of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of you. Yeah, thank All you. right. Talk to you guys later. Potluck in the future. That's where yeah. we'll see each other. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs>